When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. No, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. It's not as if she were a, a maniac, a raving thing. She just goes a little mad sometimes. We all go a little mad sometimes. I do love these shows, Adam, when we get a chance to dig into one of the greatest, most influential films of all time. This week, Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. That's right. We're checking into the Bates Motel for a sacred cow review of Hitchcock's horror classic, plus some thoughts on Oscar nominees to Leslie and All Quiet on the Western Front. That and more. No one really runs away from anything, Adam. The Oscars are like a private trap that hold us in like a prison. True enough, it's all ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. This week, Josh, we weigh in on one of the most explosive Oscar controversies of all time. Are you ready? Do you have your industry insider hat on? <laughs> what's what's this? I can't keep up with the controversies. What are we talking about? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. We're really not going to get into it at all. We will talk a little bit about Andrea Roseboro and the movie she got nominated for, mm. though. Okay, yeah, yeah. There was a little talk about that. You're gonna have ringing to be, a bell. You're gonna have to be our Riceboro correspondent. I'm afraid. Still haven't seen that one. You've done a lot of good Oscars homework. I'm I'm playing catch up. I'm a little bit behind you. We have been doing that Oscars catch up since the nominations were announced a couple of weeks ago. We will get to a few of my thoughts on that and some more thoughts on some Oscar contenders a bit later in the show. But first, it's time to change the sheets at the Bates Motel. Come along with us. Dirty night. Do you have a vacancy? No, oh, we have 12 vacancies. 12 cabins, 12 vacancies. They, uh, they moved away the highway. Oh, I thought I'd gotten off the main road. I knew you must have. Nobody ever stops here anymore unless they've done that. But... There's no sense dwelling on our losses. We just keep on lighting the lights and following the formalities. Why a sacred cow review of Psycho? Well, coming very soon, film spotting badness. Best of the 1960s. It is our ninth annual bracket-style tournament. This year, we will determine the one 1960s release to rule them all. And Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho is not only a top seed, it's certainly one of the titles that could go all the way. And it's a film that is notoriously full of surprises. As a matter of fact, the master of suspense was so intent on moviegoers not having those surprises spoiled for them in early fall 1960 that he offered no advanced screenings and basically forbid anyone writing about the film, to whatever extent the gag order could be enforced, from revealing crucial plot points. Audiences waiting in line outside theaters reportedly retreated to recordings of Hitchcock's voice saying, 
I've suggested that Psycho should be seen from the beginning. In fact, it is more than a suggestion. It is required. Wow. Little off-week massacre theater. I love it. There you go. Two minutes late. Too bad. You can get a ticket to the next complete showing. What was he trying so hard to hang on to? Sorry, Hitch. More than 60 years have passed. We're going for it. There's the big twist that it was Norman. Physically, anyway, and not his screeching, domineering mother who wielded the knife that murdered unsuspecting motel guest Marion Crane, played by Janet Lee, and Martin Balsam's Arbogast, the snooping detective in search of Miss Crane, and the $40,000 she skipped town with. When Marion's sister Lila finds a very dead Mrs. Bates sitting serenely in the basement, immediately followed by a dress and wig-wearing Anthony Perkins emerging in the doorway with that aforementioned blade— audience members must have let out their own Vera Miles-like screams. And there can't be any discourse about Psycho without mentioning the shocking bit of misdirection, the choice to suddenly kill off the film's star and supposed protagonist at approximately the 46-minute mark, turning that missing 40K into a mere MacGuffin and transforming a relatively straightforward neo-noir thriller into a full-blown horror movie. Surprises of this sort are fun especially with Hitchcock at the helm, but they aren't the types of surprises that make these sacred cow revisits so rewarding for us. The shower and Bernard Herrmann's shrieking strings, Norman's dissociative split, the psychiatrist's closing dissertation, we know and anticipate them. But with great films, especially ones you maybe haven't seen in some time, there are always revelations. Letterboxd tells me, Josh, that you actually watched Psycho less than a year ago before re-watching it for this conversation. So... I might have a longer list than you, but what details or delights did you discover this time? And no additional pressure, but Letterboxd also informs me that Damon Burnett's high school genre studies class is watching Psycho soon and will be listening intently to our thoughts. So make it good. That's right. You 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 caved in and gave them the shout out. I, I love the fan service you're doing. No caving. There. <laughs> All about fan service. Hello, Damon and, and class. Good to have you along on the conversation. Yeah, I... Boy, I've seen this movie so many times. Uh, I revisited it, as you said, last year because it's uh, it's it's central to the horror book, Fear Not, that I wrote. It's going to come out later this year. That's why I looked at it again. And as I write there, it was one of the formative horror films for me. I think we've even discussed this on this show when we did our favorite or top five childhood movie scares, I think we called it. Mm-hmm. And Psycho came up for me and I talked about seen it as a little kid way too young it was a tv version so i'm sure heavily edited that did not matter it was one of my first experiences with this level of horror and i've watched it many times since so yeah you're right maybe nothing surprised me at the level of the surprises we get as first-time viewers of psycho i did have a little different angle on that first major surprise, Marion's death. And this is influenced by the fact, as I know you are watching Poker Face, the Ryan Johnson mystery series, I realized, boy, this movie is kind of like a Columbo episode. I mean, Poker Face has been inspired by Columbo. Obviously, Psycho came before Columbo, but it has that structure of we see the murder We know essentially who the murderer is. There's that double twist, as you mentioned, in terms of Norman Bates's mother's identity. But really what Psycho becomes is an episode where Lila and Sam become amateur detectives and are trying to figure out what we already know. Are they going to put the pieces together together. and how fast? And that was, again, maybe just within within the context of Poker Face and enjoying 
that sort of construct of the mystery thriller, I appreciated how Psycho worked on that level. Now, there are some other more formal elements that I was able to really concentrate on and pull some things from because this had been such a repeated viewing for me. We'll probably get to those. But yeah, I want to hear from you that surface level surprise. I don't know how long ago it's been since you've seen it, but what jumped out to you and seemed fresh for a movie that we think, all of us, I think, feel like we know like the back of our hand. A fair amount of it seemed fresh. I think it's possible. Very different experiences for you and me this time. I think it's possible I've only seen Psycho in its entirety once. Wow, okay. I think it was as a film student. So that would have been over 20 years ago. Now, I, like you, grew up surely seeing bits and pieces of it. It was part of the public consciousness More than just the shower scene, I think I was aware of the plot points and the overall story, and I had definitely seen various scenes. But watching it this time kind of felt like I was watching it for the first time, and that meant I did have some surprises. And I've got four main ones here. I'll start with the smaller ones and build up a little bit. And obviously we'll stop as we go here, or you can chime in as well on your thoughts, because I'm sure you will have thoughts on some of these, but here's the really trivial one. And it truly is trivial horror aficionados will scoff at my ignorance when I say this, but I did put together for the first time watching John Gavin is Sam Loomis. I started kicking around that name Loomis. Loomis. And sure enough, not only is it Loomis, but it's Sam Loomis yeah. in Halloween, right. Donald Pleasance's character. Mm-hmm. And Google, of course, confirmed that not an accident on Carpenter's fault, nor is it an accident that Loomis pops up as a character name in other horror films about the ending. And there's two here. There's two elements of this that were new to me. The final shot of Perkins face, which is so great. This is the first time I picked up on the fact that it's not it's not his skeleton. It's not the skeletal version of his face that seems to be superimposed, but it actually looks like his mother's mummified face that we're seeing in that moment. And that makes more sense based on everything we've seen play out and what we've just heard. It's that that part underneath that is coming to the fore. I was also a little bit surprised to find that I thought that was the ending of the film. I was sure if you asked me to put money on it, I would have said, yeah, the the ending of Psycho, the very end Final of Psycho shot. is that shot. It's that shot. And it's it's not actually. The, the, the end comes up over the shot of Marion's car being dredged up from the swamp. Now, whether or not we need it, I kind of like it. it. It clarifies in a way or serves to clarify in the sense that we know then that there won't be any lingering mystery about what happened to Marion in that final scene with the psychiatrist. He's saying, well, yeah, he slash she told me that he killed your sister. She's dead. Abergast is dead too. But you know, until you find the body, until you have that closure, you, you don't know for sure. Can I give you another reason why I think that shot is important? I think it has to do with, as with so much of Hitchcock, making us as the audience feel guilty. And so there's a catharsis element, absolutely, as you're talking about. The mystery solved, this Mm -hmm. can be put to bed. But 
I go back to the other time we see Norman at the pond and the car is sinking. And part of me, maybe I'm a weirdo. You can confess as well. I know what you're going to say. Part of me yeah. wants it to go under. I know. For a lot of reasons, again, maybe we'll get to, at that point, we've become somewhat aligned with Norman. Mm-hmm. And so we're hoping that that car goes under and he gets away with it. This is Hitchcock's brilliance, his demented brilliance. And so I think it's brought back at the end, yes, for catharsis in terms of the mystery, but also kind of to twist that knife in us a little bit like you've been caught, or at least it's over for you now as well. So I do think that's an instrumental choice to to end with that one last shot. Yeah. And that's a perfect transition or will be a perfect transition to my last big revelation here watching this. I agree with you. Not only in that moment, are you aligned enough with him that you feel your heart stop a little bit when the car stops and you want it to sink, you want Mm -hmm. that gurgling sound to continue. But another moment of that is when he's getting questioned by Arbogast and you just want to tell him, stop talking, (laughs) right? Yeah. Stop (laughs) talking. You're just digging your own grave. But for me, the other reason I like ending on that shot is I do think it works as a visual metaphor, right? It's kind of like, be careful what you dig for. You don't know what you might drudge up. Who knows? Who really knows what else is down there? How much damage has Norman slash his mother done over the years? And also, it it ties back to Norman's psyche a little bit and what happens when his trauma is drudged up. So on that level, I think it's really effective. One more before we get to the big one that you were setting up there. I didn't recall that Marion vows to go home and return the money after that conversation with Norman, which, of course, really ramps up the tragic irony that she's still punished or she suffers even after deciding to do the right thing. And, of course, the right thing there in terms of following the law, in terms of not deviating from societal norms, but more Potently, it it underlines that she has the ability to make choices. Her life and her actions aren't predetermined. And one of the things I thought was surprising, but I also really loved about how Hitchcock plays out or portrays her decision to take the money is that we don't really see her make a decision, do we? I don't think she decides right when she gets the $40,000 in her hand that she's definitely leaving and going to steal it. That was one of my questions, which I had in both of these recent viewings. When does she decide to steal it? When is, does she decide? Is it as soon as that cash is plopped on her desk? Is it because she doesn't, she goes right home. She doesn't yeah. go to the bank and think about it in the parking lot. We see her at home, but even at home, we see a lot of indecisiveness. She keeps looking right. at the cash. She's half-heartedly packing. Um, and so, yeah, I had that exact same question. When did she make that decision? Yeah, it just happens. It just unfolds almost as if she has no choice, which I think is why it's so significant that she makes the decision to reverse it. She does have agency. She can make this decision for herself, just as Norman has a choice. And this is where it's really key that we see those characters aligned. We'll get into this a lot more. It gets trickier, of course, because of his pathology. How in control of his actions is he really? But did you notice how Hitchcock shows him hesitate when he reaches for her cabin key? Yes. His instinct is to put her in another room. I want to say it's maybe room four or something, but one that's farther away. 
from the office, one that's away from further temptation yep. to spy on her. But what does he do? He decides to grab key one instead, which just is the first domino that falls. Cabin one. It's closer in case you want anything right next to the office. Want to sleep more than anything else. Yeah, that pause is crucial. Let me go quickly back to her decision to give the money back. I think I'm with you that that's fairly clear, but did you also pause to consider that she rips up, she does the calculations of how much she owes after buying the car and that sort of thing. And then she rips up the notepad, the piece of paper that the calculations are on and tries to flush them. Now it serves Mm -hmm. a plot point because Lila and Sam find a little scrap of it later. But I also wondered is she possibly flushing it because she's? it's another moment of indecisiveness? She's keeping her options open. She's keeping her options open. I think I'm with you that she is resolute that she's going to go back. But I still like how, at the very least, Hitchcock is is leaving a slight vagueness there, I think. Similar to the scene of her at home where we're not quite sure. Overall, I'm with you, though. I think she's ready to go yeah. back. My last big shocker here. And I know this wasn't a shocker for you because I saw your post on Letterboxd and you mentioned this in your comments a year or so ago. But how good, how good and kind of sexy, but also, yes, creepy is Anthony Perkins as Norman Bates. He's incredible. It's a truly, truly great film performance. And I think somehow I just always overlooked the complexity of it the subtlety of it, the affability of it because of the character's actions and maybe even growing up with it a little bit and knowing that there were sequels and those things that he kind of became defined by this character. And I, I started to see him as just, Oh, Anthony Perkins and Norman Bates. He's just the creepy son. Right. But you really pay attention to this movie. And if you are dialed into it, you do notice all the subtlety that he brings. How about a moment? And there are so many, but how about the moment like the one where he's in her room showing it to her and that, that pause, that pause again that he makes when he kind of gestures to the bathroom. He can't even bring himself to say the bathroom. Yeah. He probably is thinking about looking into the room later and what might play out. Not necessarily in that moment, knowing that the shower scene is going to happen, that he's going to murder her, who knows? But even just the mention of the bathroom is somehow vulgar or improper Mm -hmm. or something that he intrinsically knows is going to get him into trouble with his mother if she knew, It's right? It's so good. He's incredible. It makes me feel terrible about listing him only as an honorable mention. I forget when we did this, but we did top five horror performances and I didn't have him in that top five, but a lot of the moments where we get hooked on him and the performance, I think are in that conversation, that early conversation with Marion in the, the parlor, his behind his office where he offers Mm -hmm. her the meal. And I think the great moments come down to how he juggles the two psyches within Norman, even when it's not explicit yet. We can understand that there is a gap in that in this man's identity before we know what's going on. And this is all in the performance. And and you know, when we were doing our Shyamalan show, we talked about James McAvoy in in Split. And that's another sort of dissociative identity role that is to me impressive 
in its technicality, but also very much a drastic shifting of gears. And I think what we have here with Perkins is more of a smoky mingling of the identities. And one example I would give is when he shifts from the absolute seriousness of talking about his mother's, he doesn't describe her this way, but we come to learn it's his mother's lover who talked her into building mm-hmm. the hotel. And he's telling Marion about, you know, and the way he died is the phrase he uses, which has just a hint of menace. Yeah, absolutely. A hint of guilt. Mm-hmm. And then he quickly slides. It's not, but it's not. It's not a dramatic shift, gear shift. It's more like a, a a subtle slide, I should say, to chuckling over. And he says, I guess that's nothing to talk about while you're eating. A few years ago, mother met this man and he, he talked her into building this motel. He could have talked her into anything. And when he died too, it was just too great a shock for her. And, and the way he died, I guess there's nothing to talk about while you're eating. Anyway, it was just too great a loss for her. And he he again becomes kind of this polite, demure, safe young man, even though he was just like, it's like the consciousness is about to burst forth. And he somehow manages to just elide that into this other Norman who we can feel sympathetic for, especially at that point where we don't know his potential danger and his whole story. So just the way Perkins negotiates that really throughout the film, but especially in that central conversation sequence is incredible. Yeah. I like smoky mingling a lot. It's definitely true that here, unlike in the McAvoy example, the personalities aren't distinct and that's kind of the point, right? They're so intertwined and he's been so overwhelmed by his mother that there's really no distinguishing him from her. So the way he slides in and out and you aren't ever sure that you're getting the real Norman, the real Norman doesn't even really exist. I don't think at any point in the film. And it is, you use this word and I'm glad you did. He does become a tragic character. I mentioned the tragic irony of Marion and her decision and her fate. It's just such a richer film <laughs> that he becomes a tragic character as well. And I think you also said sympathy It's always tough for me because I think more often than not, that word sympathetic, unsympathetic becomes really problematic in criticism because maybe they're a little bit too charged. People can interpret it like you're trying to justify or excuse terrible acts. And obviously he does terrible things. But for me, it's mainly just that they're not they're not sufficient when you're talking about great art and talking about great, complex characters. See Tar Lydia. The reality here is that. Hitchcock and Perkins and the screenwriter, Joseph Stefano, they could have approached Norman, if not as totally monstrous, more monstrous. They could have made him so much more scary and threatening and one note. And not only would that have been bad because it would have mitigated the suspense, but it also would have mitigated this idea that I mentioned before, I think, about the choice that he has in this, the way that both he and Marion are linked by the choices that they make. I think it's really important to Hitchcock for us to see Marion and Norman as not only not dissimilar, but yes. but see see yourself, going back to your point about how you 
are reacting in that moment when you want the car to go down into the swamp. But Marion is our surrogate, and we shouldn't feel that we are so strikingly different than Norman. Not that he or we are guilty of the horrors that he is, but I do think this is a movie fundamentally about shame, of which guilt is an inextricable component. And we can all relate to feelings of shame and guilt. And Marion, that's that's especially true of her. Think about the entire opening scene, a pretty racy one for 1960, even with yep. the Hayes Code in decline, the slip and bra, and it's a motel tryst, and she's an unmarried woman with a divorced man. That entire conversation that Lee and Gavin have is in their own words, trying to recover some respectability, some sense of propriety. You've got the connection of sexual shame in that moment for both Marion and Norman. And he links them visually in other ways too, visually and orally, the voices in their heads as she drives and the voices that he hears, obviously. How about the devious smiles? Another thing I never caught up on before. You can't, Overlook the fact that that moment we all remember from the end of the film is also a look that Janet Lee gives us much earlier. Yes. As she's playing out the scenario of everyone back in Phoenix discovering her crime, Hitchcock gets that camera closer and closer to her. Eventually, the fear on her face transforms into something else, transform into something a little wicked, just like Norman's does. You've, uh, I think you were peeking at my notes. I, I have here our Norman and Marion mirror images. And that was, you know, something that was relatively new to me these last couple of times. And you called out, you called out all the good examples of this. I think that creepy smile she gives, it's actually, there are two times where she's hearing voices. And the first time mm-hmm. she's, she's more nervous. Cause I, I think it's her boss talking about where's Marion or why hasn't she come in yet? The time where she gives the smile and here's where we're, yeah, I'll use that word sympathetic to her is when she's imagining what the creepy rich guy whose right. money she Thinks stole. Yeah. yeah. The, and, and yeah, exactly. And it's imagining how distraught he is when he realizes mm-hmm. he's been ripped off and she gives that creepy smile. And again, that's right. We agree with her. We're like, yeah, that guy kind of did deserve it. <laughs> you know, maybe not ripping off all his 40 grand, but yeah, he was, he was kind of weird. So you enjoy this moment. And there are other ways. I think here's another tiny detail that links them early on in that hotel room. When she's talking to Sam, did you notice she references having a portrait of her mother up at home? I did. I did very much notice that. It's in the context of what you were just talking Uh about, this propriety, right? She wants Turning mother's picture around. Yes. So they don't have to turn the picture around. They want, she wants them to have a proper relationship her mother could be proud of. And, you know, these, these two figures are both trapped in ways we've kind of touched on. He's trapped by his mother or his perception of her, and she's trapped by her theft. They're both trapped by guilt over what they've done. And, you know, that's that's the question, the famous question that Norman asks her. We all go a little mad sometimes, haven't you? He asks her, and her answer is yes. You know, and so there are so many ways. I, I love that that popped up to both of us that these two are maybe not exact mirror images, but definitely something that Hitchcock is playing with how Norman is a more extreme variation, perhaps, on who we come to understand Marion to be. Going back to 
her mother and the picture frame. And I'm not suggesting that he's referencing this exact frame, but this is something I noticed too. And I wonder if we were supposed to catch on to this. Hitchcock certainly pauses on it long enough, this shot of Marion long enough for us to see what's in the frame. And if we know anything, not just about Hitchcock's films, but this film from watching it, there are no visual details that are there by accident. And in that scene where she's being really indecisive, as you said, it's sort of like, is she really leaving? Is she going with the money? Is she hitting the road? There's a shot for a good portion of that right behind her that has to be her parents on the wall. It's almost as if her parents are judging her. They're watching <laughs> her in that moment. And there's there's talk of mother, too, going back to the very beginning with her coworker, right? She's talking about her mother. So Hitchcock's just planting these seeds of the ways that their lives do intersect. And some of the same psychology affects the both of them, even if they manifest themselves in very different ways. Absolutely. So let me talk a little bit about one of the formal elements that I was able to really burrow into on this repeat viewing. You referenced the Bernard Herrmann score so great. I think you said, did you say shrieking strings? Shrieking strings. Yeah, that's that's perfect. I think of them also as, you know, stabbing strings when they're at that mm-hmm. height, the, the tempo of them and just the puncturing nature of them. I don't know if strings have ever been employed more unnervingly. Um, it's the dark side of stringed instruments, which we think of as being something beautiful and angelic and holy so often. Um, Here we get the dark side of it. And I realized, you know, we all know inherently why that sound works, but I wanted to watch how and when Hitchcock employed it this time. And, And I found an interesting pattern and I may have not caught everything, but I wanted to think about when though that stabbing sense of the strings was used and they're using the opening credits, but then we don't get them again till Uh, Her boss walks in front of her car at the intersection. So we're about 15 minutes in. That's the first time in the movie we get them. And then we get them next as she pulls away from the cop on the road after she's pulled on the side. And then later when she sees the cop watching her at the car lot. Um, And then they come in again when she's driving. And as we were just discussing, when she's imagining what her boss will say when he realizes that the money is gone. All those first instances, four of them, I think there were are of implied guilt, right? Each mm-hmm. one features a man who is suspicious of her. And we know that they're suspicious for mostly good reason, right? She is guilty. So to me, those strings become implanted in our head, not just physically intimidating, that stabbing element, that that inherently disruptive element where we kind of like jolt at them. But now they're morally accusing as well. So there's a physical and a psychological weight to them. And... Because we've become sympathetic to Marion, thanks to Lee's performance, Lee's really good here as well, mm-hmm. that guilt is starting to become ours. So we're back to this whole Hitchcock idea. And here's the brilliance of it, Adam. That guilt then gets carried over to the shower scene. So when the strings show up there, we're not only scared, but we're also starting to feel culpable. This is part of the transference of our feelings from Marion to Norman, even as we're horrified by her death. So that guilt carries over even after Marion is gone. This is why we feel it when we're watching the car sink and it pauses and we gasp because we want it to sink. And then after Marion's death, you know, it still comes back when we hear those strings again. We don't hear them till Arbogast killing. Uh, again, psychologically, I think we start to feel culpability even in that killing. Mm-hmm. And then one last time when Norman attacks Lila in the cellar. So the score itself is brilliant musically, yes. but 
just watching how Hitchcock employs it and when gives another idea of just how this master of suspense manipulates us in ways we, you know, we can't even really recognize what is happening to us until we've maybe given multiple viewings and a lot of thought to actually what is going on here in what on the surface seems like a slasher movie. Is anything wrong? Of course not. Am I acting as if there's something wrong? Frankly, yes. Please, I'd like to go. Well, is there? Is there what? I've told you there's nothing wrong, except that I'm in a hurry and you're taking up my time. Now, just a moment. Turn your motor off, please. May I see your license? Why? Please. I love the cop and how he's employed here. It's not that it's fantasy, but it's also not totally realistic. The way he tracks her, their interaction is even a bit out of the ordinary. We never see his eyes. And he's like a we mythic never see figure. His eyes. It's heightened in the way that it makes you realize he is meant to represent something else. And you mentioned guilt. And in that moment, it's like he's her conscience. He's her conscience manifested saying, I'm actually looking out for you, right? He says that I'm looking out for you. You're on the side of the road. That's kind of dangerous. You really slept here all night. And then he is almost giving her the chance to pull back, to go ahead and say, I'm not going to go through with it. And she plows ahead against the will of her conscience. Anyway, a visual touch I liked. We all talk about the ending, of course, and we haven't really talked about the ending that everyone wants to debate with this film, the psychiatrist's speech. But how about the opening? Not just overlooking the city and kind of introducing us to the setting, but then once that camera finds the two of them, the two lovers, Sam and Marion, I love how the curtains are closed, but the breeze is kind of blowing them open. The motel window is slightly open. You can see a bed, you can see figures, but he's veiling it in such a way that you, you want to see more, (laughs) but you can't. And so what does he do? He says, okay, I'm just going to go ahead. I'm going to encourage your voyeuristic impulses. And I'm going to first suggest that something perhaps illicit is happening behind those curtains because I'm not showing it to you. But then I'm going to grant you entry. My camera is just going to go ahead and glide under that window and take you into that illicitness, which in short is the entire movie. That's what Hitchcock's camera is doing. Yeah. And right from the start, he's implicating us. He's making it feel as if it was our choice. It wasn't his choice. Mm. Like he, he had that curtain and you could look away. We could show you, but yeah, I mean, we insisted, we didn't leave. We stood there and we made him push the camera into the room. How about as we talk about things that aren't accidents, And it is a visual detail if it's not the camera or the editing, but the simple, not so subtle change in Marion's clothing, going from the white bronze slip 
when she is seeking more propriety or respectability, even as she is in the parlance of the movie engaged in an act that isn't that reputable or is improper. But then when she makes the decision to take the money or we know that she is setting about to make that decision and she's leaving, she's packing up. What is she wearing? She's wearing a black bra. She's wearing a black slip. Again, don't think it's by accident that Hitchcock is trying to cue us into where her head is at in that moment. Well, and eventually she's wearing nothing, right? And you can, right. you can debate the implications and, again, the shaming elements that might be involved there. But yeah, I with what you point out, it does seem like Hitchcock at least implies a progression. Yeah, she's changed. She has changed and the attention is drawn significantly enough to what she's wearing. Again, it also would have very much stood out to a 1960 audience. The death of Martin Balsam on the stairs oh, gosh. is all-time great, oh. disorienting, scary Hitchcock sequences. I love as well, even something as small potentially as, I say small because it is huge in terms of the story and everything that follows, but it could have just been played by a lesser filmmaker. This is one of those moments by a lesser filmmaker. Her driving up and discovering the Bates Motel in the rain wouldn't really have been anything that caught your eye or made you think at all. The way Hitchcock shoots it, where the rain is falling so hard and the lights from the other cars, the oncoming traffic is starting to blind her a little bit. She's getting disoriented here in this moment. And all of a sudden, the Bates Motel and the neon lights, the rain kind of pauses for a second, just enough to open up as if she has discovered this oasis in the middle of the storm. And there's there's more irony of it, of course, right? That it's not that at all. It won't be that for her. But in that moment, that's what it seems like to her. And there ends up being something, some nice, I suppose, tragic foreshadowing there in that moment. Yeah, I think it's, I like the use of the wipers in that right. scene as well, where yeah. it's like, it gives us a clear shot of the, the house. I think at that point, it is to tantalize us, make it interested. Well, what's that now? What's up there? And then the rain comes down and the wipers come past and we can't see it again. It's it's just, again, teasing us mm-hmm. with what we want to see but aren't quite allowed to see yet. Taxidermy. How about the taxidermy in this film, too? That that bird, I, I couldn't quite tell. I'm I'm bad with animals. Is is it a really scary owl that, that we see? There's a in lot that of frame? birds. There's a, an alarming number of birds in that but room. But there's one that occupies more of the frame than Anthony Perkins' head when he has kind of an extended yeah, up in the corner, right? <laughs> time that he's speaking to her as she's eating. And the way he drops those birds into different scenes and all those talons and the claws just to increase that sense of, of ominousness, that something is menacing here. I'll say again, maybe not an accident, or at least he gets your brain so wired to think in those terms that when you see later Lila at the hardware store, at Sam's hardware store, when he says, I'm going to go check it out. And she's like, what am I supposed to do? Just stay here. I think it's in that moment. It's a close up of her and she's standing right in front of a bin full of rakes. So these rakes are like the claws of these birds and these animals at the Bates Motel right over her head, Josh. This really got under your skin this time. Didn't it did. It? it did. Anything else here that 
I mean, want to touch on? We could what get, we not we could get into the ending. I, I wish I had a stronger opinion for it on it, but I feel like I understand that it's a film that is so visually interesting in all the ways we've talked about does somewhat stop dead in its tracks for this long explanation scene by the psychiatrist. But I got to say, every time I watch the movie, I'm kind of glad it's there because I am too, even though I know the story and I think I know the psychology behind it, I have been so jarred that I want someone to hold me by the hand and just say, it's okay. We, we know what happened here and let me explain it to you. And maybe that's not how a horror movie should work. Maybe a horror movie should leave you in your distress to be really effective. But this one puts you through such a ringer that every time I watch it, I I'm just grateful for those moments of explanation and, you know, another level, which someone with credentials and degrees that we don't have in terms of psychology and psychiatry could talk about how this maybe is a not a healthy representation of mental illness. Um, it's certainly an exaggerated case of, uh, I guess it would be possibly disassociative identity disorder, but um, I think that's a worthy conversation to have. And the reference to, you know, calls, uh, there's a debate whether Norman is a transvestite, obviously thinking has evolved in terms of cross-dressing and transgender identity. These, these are all cans of worms that ending mm-hmm. does have within them. But just speaking in terms of as a movie viewer watching it in terms of the construct of the thriller horror conventions, I still am glad it's there. Did he talk to you? No. I got the whole story, but not from Norman. I got it from his mother. Norman Bates no longer exists. He only half existed to begin with. And now, the other half has taken over. Probably for all time. That's where I come out to right now. Simon Oakland is the actor, Dr. Richmond, the psychiatrist there at the end. And over the years, I've seen different people in different places suggest, oh, it should have ended here. Or it should have ended with this moment and then given us this moment. Or maybe these two moments, but we didn't need this. And I get it. I I do. I'm with you that there's something that seems completely counterintuitive to what we usually love about great cinema to have it all so neatly laid out and have it have it be told to us in a movie that's so much about showing. And yet I've never heard one of those new proposed endings that actually seems satisfying to me. Forget as satisfying as this ending. It doesn't seem satisfying to me at all. The ones I've heard, maybe again, someone out there will take up the mantle and chime in with something that moves me, but I haven't been convinced of an alternate ending yet. And any ending that doesn't give us those final two moments that we talked about, especially the smile, especially the smile. And I do like the the tacked on car moment that we touched on, but you're right. Even if it was just the smile, that would have been enough. So I need that moment. And if that's how we get it, then I'm good with it. But also I was very aware of this watching the ending this time. And that is, I'm not sure we can replicate the experience of being an audience member for Psycho in 1960. Of course. Right? On, a, on a, a basic story level, we have now all been inundated 
with so many serial killer movies and detective shows. Yeah. And yes, everything you said too, we're more sophisticated on a lot of these topics, certainly when it comes to mental health, transgender identity, all that stuff, that it's impossible not to imagine modern viewers, most modern viewers watching this and not catching on to the split personality aspect pretty quickly. The movie, of course, is completely committed to that mystery and the reveal, the different voices we get to throw us off the scent, the obscuring and the overhead shots of the mother. All of that's meant for us to buy, just like the rest of the characters do, that there is a Mrs. Bates in that house Mm -hmm. until we discover, along with Vera Miles, that she's dead. But in 1960, audiences surely hadn't been inundated with all those types of stories I mentioned. And the compulsion to put it in perspective at the time doesn't seem so absurd to me. It seems pretty necessary. It does. And even as we're thinking about it more, you know, I say how I find it a relief to have things explained to me. On another level, it's still very disconcerting. It's just because I now know Mm -hmm. what has been going on. What has been going on is still pretty messed up. <laughs> so it's not it's not entirely comforting just to have it explained to me. I think audiences then and now still leave Psycho feeling quite a bit unnerved. Yeah, I think part of the feeling of being unnerved, too, comes from the fact that Hitchcock just isn't going to be sentimental about anything. There is a certain callousness to the film, even at the very end, where you have to realize that Sam has lost – Oh, his yeah. lover and potentially his the doctor wife. hardly acknowledges it. I think <laughs> and Lila's the sister who's sitting there. And when he explains it, he at one point even says, and then he killed the girl. Yeah. He's talking to her and he calls her sister the girl yeah. as if she doesn't have a name, as if they didn't grow up together, that she doesn't love her and is. It is now mourning her loss. The The psychiatrist has no idea about that whatsoever, and Hitchcock doesn't really care. No, I think he gives some half-hearted, like, you know, I, I'm so sorry, or I'm sorry for your loss, but it's it's clearly he's he doesn't really care himself. No. This is a clinical, a clinical case for him, and, you know, maybe it is for Hitchcock. Maybe that's why he was so good at this stuff, is there's not a level of emotional investment where he's going to comfort us in any way. Right. I mean, we're, no. we are never comforted in his best, most disturbing movies. When he met your sister, he was touched by her, aroused by her. He wanted her. That set off the jealous mother, and mother killed the girl. We'll close with this real quick. I will confess that I would have completely overlooked giving this person credit had we not gotten an email about it. But since we did get an email about it, I think it's worthy to call out. Do you want to mention Saul Bass, not only giving us the opening credit sequence, which really is very minimalist, very understated, but very effective and puts you in just the right mindset for this film along with that Herman score. But Mark Madel or Medell wrote in and said, that he was hoping in our deep dive on Psycho, we'd mention the contributions of Bass, something which Hitchcock sadly refused to acknowledge during his Truffaut interviews, in which most people continue to ignore due to the stature of Hitchcock's reputation 
or due to the mistaken belief that since Hitchcock was the final creator, it doesn't matter. But if that were true, we never talk about cinematographers and their contributions. In this particular case, Mark says, Bass is responsible for the design and storyboarding of the most famous scene in the film, the shower scene, of course, which unfortunately is likely why Hitchcock downplayed his contributions, as well as the idea for time-lapse clouds above the Bates house at night, and of course, the film's titles. So, Bass kind of had to make a case for this, I guess. He had to raise the issue after that Hitchcock Truffaut book came out and he kind of got cut out of it or didn't get proper credit. Mark even cites Billy Wilder as saying, I think in a 1994 interview, that everybody knew that that was Saul Bass, that shower scene. And he, of course, deserves that credit. There's a YouTube video that explores this whole topic, Sal Bass and his contributions to Hitchcock film. So I will link to it in our show notes if more people are curious. Yeah, and he gets a, a strange credit, if I recall. I'm looking up at IMDb now, and I think this is what it is, a pictorial consultant slash titles designed by. And I remember, if it's not exactly that on the screen, I remember seeing his name and there was some strange designation that seemed kind of vague to me. So so that's helpful background. Psycho is available VOD and is currently streaming on the Criterion channel. We want to give a quick thanks to everyone who has given us a rating or a review over the last week. These ratings, along with your word of mouth recommendations, they're the best way to introduce film spotting to new listeners. We do want to thank, in particular, the following who have all left reviews over the past week on Apple Podcasts. Andy Bucati. Fun with Barb. I'm assuming I'm assuming that's Star who left that review. And Frank Pello in the UK. Thank you, Andy. Barb and Frank, share your rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last one, ladies. Can you touch this? Can you welcome touch this? Well, that too, the law says that you cannot touch. But I think I see a lot of lawbreakers up in this house. We're going to have to establish some house rules for next week's show, Josh. (laughs) I think so. We don't want things to get out of control. No, with Magic Mike's Last Dance opening this weekend, we thought it would be fun to consider the trilogy in toto. Yes, that means 2012's Magic Mike, 2015's Magic Mike XXL, and the new one, which has Steven Soderbergh returning as Director, we have given ourselves the assignment of identifying the trilogy's magic-est moments. Now, I will take some credit for coming up with the inspired but also insanely obvious top five magic-est moments, but this was your top five concept, was it not, Josh? It was, and so we need to hash out a little bit what magic-est, which I love, actually means. Now, my Mm. thinking when I brought this up was... We've got to just select our favorite dance sequences from these films. I mean, I think especially we're talking about maybe doing this as a joint top five so we can give some time to reviewing the film itself. You know, there are so many to pick from. They're the highlights of the films for me, at least, I feel like, and for most audiences. So is that kind of where you're thinking or do you want to get do you want to get more emotional and philosophical about this and also also choose a moment that speaks to, you know, economic despair and sure. you know the the which I I acknowledge the first magic it's mic. There. It's there. It touches on it. Um yeah, do we it's want Soderberg. these are smart films. Do we want Channing Tatum's but... best line reading? Who again? <laughs> no. He's great. No. Really good yeah, in the first one. Love Channing Tatum. Or do we just want to get 
to the meat of these movies? I think going for emotional and profound might be a bit of a stretch, even though I acknowledge, as we just said, these are smart movies in addition to being incredibly entertaining movies. I have not started to form my list yet, and I haven't rewatched either of the first two, and I haven't seen as of this recording the new one. So I don't really know where I'm going, but let me put it this way. If next week on the show, I'm regaling you with the profundity of a scene that has no dancing in it whatsoever, I would be pretty shocked. Okay. I I can stop you. I can cry foul. Yeah. Okay, good. You can say your whole list is void and (laughs) just kick me off. I like it. If you've got a pick for Magic Est Mike moment, and you know what? You can include one that is incredibly emotional sure. and profound. Give us a great line reading. We may choose to ignore it completely, but you can do it. Feedback at filmspotting.net is the email, or find us on social at filmspotting or at Larson on film. This week on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, they have a new pairing that they're shaking things up a little bit. They're departing Uh-oh. from their cinematic mission. I don't know if this it's is- It's not allowed. Is it? I mean, <laughs> they might want to check their charter on this. At the we very got least, grief the one time we did this. I know. This is dangerous territory. They might not know what they're in for. At least they're choosing a fantastic film to focus on. That's Alfonso mm-hmm. Cuaron's Children of Men. But yeah, they're going to pair this with the HBO limited series, The Last of Us, starring Pedro Pascal. So we'll have to see how that works out comparing a feature with a limited series. Your next picture show hosts are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. You can get new episodes every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get more information at nextpictureshow.net. The next small picture show. They're going to have to change it. I can see my blood bubbling up, mixing with the sunlight, shining through the water. And I think, wow. That's really pretty. Poll results time, Josh. Will Smith there and M. Night Shyamalan's After Earth, a movie that did not come up last week when we shared our top five Shyamalan moments. And that's probably because neither of us have seen After Earth. I don't know that people who have would have really gone to bat for it. Anyway, maybe, though, that was a title on listeners' minds when they responded to the film spotting poll question we posed a couple of weeks ago, anticipating Knock at the Cabin and our review, we asked you, M. Night Shyamalan is, you can finish the sentence with one of these four options, underrated and underappreciated, solid, more good stuff than bad, hit and miss, mostly miss, or a one-hit wonder who peaked with the sixth sense. How did it come out, Josh? So 10% of listeners said that Yeah, he's a one-hit wonder who peaked with the sixth sense. Now, the opposite on the spectrum, 11% of the vote went to underrated and underappreciated. Thank you all. In second place here, 30% of the vote went to solid. More good stuff than bad, but 48% of listeners said hit and miss, mostly miss. Yeah, I suppose if you wanted to break it down a little more directly, 58, 59%. In the negative camp on Shyamalan, leaving 41-42% a little more positive on Shyamalan. And that probably doesn't really surprise me. That that seems about right. 
Yeah, you've got some hardcore folks who, you know, maybe they don't defend After Earth, but even defend the happening. So mm-hmm. I think they're represented here, but outweighed by those who think he is mostly a mess. Julio Oliveira decided to go with option five, an inexplicable, unsolvable puzzle. The biggest twist in Shyamalan's career is that he went on to make head scratchers like Glass and Old after that magnificent stretch that goes from the sixth sense to the village. So I went with hit and miss. And yes, sadly, mostly miss. The last time he awed me was back in 04. And his movies since then have underwhelmed me at best and irritated me at worst. But he earned my repeat business early on. And surprisingly, somehow, he hasn't lost it yet. In that way, Shyamalan might be a bit of a unicorn. That you can hear someone like Julio say that. If you look over the entire expanse of his career, it's mostly miss. Not only miss, but he frustrates me to no end. I hate some of these films. But I still pay to go see what he does. Is it that just hoping he'll get the magic back? Like the best Maybe. magic will come back at some point? Maybe that's it. We also heard from Bone Steel. Is that one of the dancers in the Magic Mike films? <laughs> I, I'm trying to remember. Yeah. Bone Steel says, I think M. Night has good instincts as a storyteller, but has been carrying around the burden of prestige since his The Sixth Sense was such a massive hit. At his core, M. Night is a B-movie director who would flourish in the Blumhouse mold. Hmm. I like to call him Knight. We're tight that way. Jody Kujawa says, if there was ever a director I wanted to be all in on, it was M. Knight. I loved the stretch from The Sixth Sense to Lady in the Water. I even forgave him and became an apologist when he wasn't doing so good. I appreciated that, like Merrill and Signs, he swung wildly. They can't all be home runs when you play ball like that. I felt after years of minor league films, we're going to continue the analogy, he'd returned to form with Split. It's not a perfect film, but that's okay because he's a messy filmmaker. Then came Glass, which was a disappointment. Then came Old. I walked out of that movie so distressed that I vowed never to partake in another Shyamalan outing. Not only was it the worst movie of the year, it's one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Wow. Jody is out. Out. By the way, Adam, um, I call Shyamalan when we talk Patty. One more comment here from Susan Thompson. For me, it's never been about the plots. It is about the vulnerability of the characters and the way they are required to face the pain of their past, to fight the fears of their present, and come out the other side transformed. That I, think, I think Susan is a doppelganger. It's a gnome de plume for M. Night Shyamalan. <laughs> that is the through line in his work. Signs, the village, and yes, even, and maybe especially so, the lady in the water. I will be a fan until the end. Not always a critical champion, but a fan of the characters he conjures, serving as a conduit to my own new understanding every time mm. I sit in the darkness. Thank okay. you, Susan, fellow lady in the water appreciator. <laughs> Our thanks to everyone who voted and especially to those who left a comment. Our new poll looks ahead a couple of weeks to when we plan to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the 1973 movie year. Yes, it will be our top five films of 1973, part of a project long in the making, our year-by-year top five countdowns. Sort of, speaking of hit and miss, is kind of on again, off again, these year-by-year countdowns. We're getting to it. I mean, we'll we'll complete the project some decade. Some decade, we will. But we're focusing on 73 this time, Josh. We want to know what film our listeners think is the best of that year. The options we're giving you for Best of 73, Terrence Malick's Badlands, William Friedkin's The Exorcist, or Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye. And we'll also give you the option of other. It's a great movie year. There are a ton of great movies to choose from. So if you hear that and think, 
really? You're only giving us three options? And some people did respond that way on Facebook. I get it. But we feel like these are the three that belong at the top of this poll. And other, of course, gives you the freedom to write in whatever film you would like. A version of the poll we put on Twitter included Martin Scorsese's Mean Streets, but that one was way behind in early voting to the other three. Right now, Josh, not a surprise, and it makes me feel so good. The Exorcist has an early lead, but not by much, so you can still affect the outcome. If you are considering other, we are hearing some other titles, seeing those roll in. You could choose Mean Streets, but how about one of these? George Lucas's American Graffiti, Peter Bogdanovich's Paper Moon, just watched that for the first time the other night, Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now, Hal Ashby's The Last Detail, or how about the 1974 Best Picture winner, The Sting? The cult horror film The Wicker Man is also a popular write-in, along with The Last of Sheila. This is... A film I'd never heard of, Adam, but I guess is enjoying A Second Life as a movie that inspired Ryan Johnson's Glass Onion. Is this familiar to you? It's familiar to me only because in the lead up to the release of Glass Onion, or maybe shortly after its release, I did see an interview or read a comment somewhere from Ryan Johnson about the influence of The Last of Sheila. And I did the other night go to VOD and almost hit the button to watch it. And then I got sidetracked by something, but it is one I hope to see before we do this top five next week. Now the chances, maybe this isn't fair, but I said, this was a really good movie year. The chances of the last of Sheila bumping out really my top 15 from this year seems unlikely. Nevertheless, I'm going to try to fit it in. I'll say right now, the other movie I am planning to complete it's a longer movie, Josh. I did start it, enjoying it so far, but need to finish it. Is another film that I think I will end up being a big fan of, but probably won't have it again in my top five. It's the movie Papillon, Steve McQueen and Dustin Hoffman. When we did, many years ago, our top five movie prisoners didn't make our list. Steve McQueen there, Dustin Hoffman, neither of them making our list. A lot of people wrote in and said, what are you guys doing? Not only are they great, it's one of the best prison movies ever. Hadn't seen it, and I don't want to get yelled at again, so I'm going to watch it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's inevitable. We're going to get yelled at, because as you said, this is a stacked movie year. I've been watching stuff for a couple of weeks now, and I know I'm not going to get to everything. And part of it is just taking chances on movies I'm curious about that came out. In 73. Today, I watched uh, The Spook Who Sat by the Door, which mm. I'd never heard of until it came Elvis, up in the Elvis, Elvis Mitchell, Mitchell mm -hmm. doc, right? Is that black enough for you as a, I don't know if, I guess you could call it black exploitation, but just sounded like a fascinating title. And so I thought that's one just to get my mind, even if it doesn't end up in my top five. And it's good. It's fascinating. I don't know that it's going to crack that, but just to get my mind around that time, you know, like what was going on in film in 73, I knew I wanted to see it. So yeah, trust us. We're doing our work. We're trying to get to as many of these titles as we can. And hopefully we'll both end up with a fairly representative list of the best of that year. You can vote in that poll. You can write in a movie that we haven't mentioned yet that you insist we see before we do our top five. We'll try our best. That's all we can promise. Filmspotting.net. How does it feel to win such a life-changing sum of money? Oh, well, I feel a hell of a lot better than yesterday. <laughs> what do you plan to do with 190,000 smackaroos? I don't know. Maybe buy a house, buy something nice for my boy, you know? 
That's surprise Best Actress nominee Andrea Riceborough in To Leslie. It's directed by Michael Morris, and in it, Riceborough plays Leslie, a struggling single mom who wins the lottery and then blows it all on drink and drugs. The film co-stars Mark Maron and Allison Janney. Adam, we'll probably get to whether you think Riceborough deserved that fifth Oscar slot a little closer to the awards when we do our preview show. For now, are you glad that this nomination pushed you to go ahead and check out to Leslie. I am. And I understand that the campaign controversy has overshadowed any conversation about the movie and the performance itself, which is a little unfortunate as a showcase for Riseboro's estimable talent to Leslie succeeds. We have seen so many characters and stories like this before, Josh stories about characters struggling with addiction They seem to have hit rock bottom. They're making terrible choice after terrible choice. They're hurting everyone who might have loved them and who they purportedly love. They're seeking a second chance, seeking some kind of redemption. The difference here, and I'm not saying what Michael Morris is doing is unique or groundbreaking. It's a matter of degrees, but it does push the extent to which we as viewers are willing to not just completely reject this character, to even want her to get that second chance and ultimately get a shot at redemption. Leslie doesn't seem, for most of the film, interested in either. And Riceboro completely strips away from this character any softness or sentimentality. The suspense of the film, what suspense there is, isn't a matter of what will become of her Will her life take a turn for the better? It can't get worse. (laughs) And again, we've seen this story so many times before. So that's not really it. It becomes about whether or not the arc of this character, the arc of this woman feels true or not. And it felt, it felt authentic enough for me, certainly authentic enough for me to really appreciate Riseboro's performance and be glad that I did see it before weighing in with my final Oscar ballot. If you want to see it, To Leslie is available VOD. Your Oscar homework had you knocking out a film, I believe, is your lone Best Picture nominee blind spot. Is that true? Yeah, All Quiet on the Western Front. Edward Berger's film nominated for, is that right, nine awards? It sounds right, because I remember as those nominations came rolling out, it kept coming up. It did. And this is a film I saw just before we closed out the year with our wrap party. It was my pick for best opening scene of the year. What did you think? It's, I mean, you would think after seeing so many war pictures, and Mm -hmm. particularly pictures based around World War One or two that you wouldn't see another one that kind of shakes you to the level that All Quiet on the Western Front does. And I think that's to its credit. I know there's some debate about why do we need more of these? Um, don't we know this already, how horrible it was? And I don't know. I, I think that, you know, it's... It's going to be always relevant to be reminded of the horrors of war. I don't know that all audiences need to see it, depending on your sensibility or your experiences, 
But I was struck how, I think I was struck by two things with this version of All Quiet on the Western Front. It had that explicit immediacy that I associate with Spielberg saving Private Ryan. And then it stepped back and also had that bureaucratic bird's eye view of Kubrick's Paths of Glory. So right there, two like pretty impressive touchstones. You know, I would say both mm-hmm. of those are better films than this for various reasons, but it's working in that tradition and combining both of those. So I was quite impressed by that. And in terms of being shaken by it, I'd particularly point to a scene, you know, I won't go into it in detail, but it's where the main character, eventually who becomes the main character here, Paul, played by Felix Kammerer, uh, a German soldier, he confronts a French soldier in a pit, a mud pit in the trenches and ends up just there man-to-man battle and where it goes and the trajectory of that encounter. Mm -hmm. Again, spoil seems like a strange word to use, but I don't want to spoil what happens there. It sort of encapsulates the entire film for me, just how that captures the fervor, the, um, the guilt, the bloodlust, um, the shame. It's, it's all in there in that sequence in a way that is deeply distressing as a movie like this should be. I, I'll also say, you know, camera is very good, but the performance mm-hmm. that stood out to me is Albright Schaff as I think he plays cat. He is in mm-hmm. Paul's company, a, a very soulful shoemaker. Um, he has a scene where he and Paul, he cannot read, very well. Paul can comes from a different class, a more educated class. And so Paul reads Cat a letter that his wife has sent. And that just captured to me something that was almost more devastating than the physical loss of life we had been seeing is just this soul crushing loss of it's it's a loss of the life you could have had or the loss that was waiting there for you if it weren't for the senselessness of this war. So uh, great performance there. Um, bravura sequences in terms of the war filmmaking that really does stand out. I would say if it didn't land among the best for me of the year or why I wouldn't put it in a best picture category is just that familiarity. And that's just a personal thing. You know, I have seen, as I said, so many war pictures that, um, in a sense, that slot has been filled. This is totally unfair, right? But it feels for me personally that slot has been filled in terms of stuff that is maybe going to surprise me in a different way. There's there's a certain familiarity to this movie as expertly as it is done. On Letterboxd, I referenced the Truffaut quote that I didn't even know was Truffaut's until I Googled it, where he said, every war movie is pro-war. And I think that that is largely true. This movie... The praise I gave it is that I felt like it came closer to disproving that than any war movie I could think of. A lot of people wrote in, Josh, telling me, no, what about this movie? What about that movie? Most of the ones they suggested, I think, actually helped prove Truffaut's point. Not that they don't show the horrors of war or the brutality of it or depict it as a good and glorious thing. There is a lot of nuance to this conversation. Yeah. And people who wrote in and said, what about come and see? You got me. I haven't seen Come and See. You might be right. But again, I said any movie I can think of. And that was really what stood out to me. Paths of Glory is another one that would be very close. Certainly comparable, a good counter to that Truffaut quote. But a lot of films in this genre, no matter how awfully they depict war, find a way to show some honor in it, 
to show some glory in it, to explore the idea of brotherhood, to make it seem like whether they want to explicitly leave you with this idea or not, to give you this sense that you can be part of something that's bigger than you and these relationships that you might forge could actually be worth all of this bloodshed. All Quiet on the Western Front, let's just leave it at this. All Quiet on the Western Front, this Edward Berger version certainly disposes or dispenses with all of that from my perspective. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. I think that's how I felt coming out of it. You know, it, it, even comparing to something like Saving Private Ryan, you talk about honor and um, yeah. and brotherhood. You know, the argument could be made that that movie does, you know, leave us in a place which is yes. not necessarily anti-war. So, so yeah, I think I'm I'm think I'm with you in terms of you know, I certainly came away from watching this feeling the despair more than anything else and, and and maybe not much else, to be honest. You mentioned Ryan. I mentioned it. I'll mention it one more time. The scene you reference, the hand-to-hand combat scene against the opponent, of course, is very reminiscent of the Adam Goldberg scene, mm. one-on-one with a Nazi. That might be the most harrowing sequence in <laughs> Saving Private Ryan. Forget about D-Day. That scene is the one that sticks with me the most and really kind of terrifies me the most. All Quiet on the Western Front is available exclusively on Netflix. Finally, I also had a chance to catch up with Best Doc Feature nominee Navalny. It's directed by Daniel Rower, and it's about Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, who survived a 2020 assassination attempt via a deadly nerve agent, and the movie documents his own investigation into his poisoning. The Kremlin hates Navalny so much that they refuse to say his name. Passengers heard Navalny cry out in agony. Come on. Poisoned? Seriously? Part political portrait, part espionage thriller, containing perhaps the most jaw-dropping phone call in the history of cinema. I won't spoil it, but... We once did our top five phone calls here on Film Spotting. This would instantly jump to number one, this extended sequence that I have actually found myself multiple times recounting this scene to several people, kind of at random. I'm not just accosting people on the street, but if I'm back home with the in-laws or whatever, or just hanging out with some friends I haven't seen in a while, I'll be like, have you seen this film, Navalny? You're not going to believe this scene that happens with Navalny and this phone call that he makes. It's insane and also scary, but wonderful all at the same time. It's just one of the most, I can't believe what I just saw movie moments of the entire year. And the film overall has an urgency and that thriller element to it that makes it really compelling. It's not something where they're putting together the investigation of his attempted assassination after the fact, which I'm sure they still could have made feel a bit like a thriller and still injected some of that urgency and immediacy into it. But it was shot during the investigation by Navalny himself and some other associates that he recruited, journalists doing some work on the dark web and piecing a bunch of information together. So everything they're learning is in real time and has that real time feel to it. And Navalny himself is so fascinating. I only knew of him. I'm going to admit my ignorance when it comes to international politics here. I only knew of Navalny because I remember hearing about the assassination attempt 
that Putin had tried to take out one of his rivals with this nerve agent, with this poison, but he survived it. That's really all I knew. And he is so naturally charismatic, fiercely intelligent, unflappable, and likable. And he's taking on this despot with seemingly no fear about him at all that it's just really impossible to not be inspired by him and not to be kind of enamored with him. And I don't even know fully how to articulate it, but I think Rohr understands that. He certainly understands that as the filmmaker chronicling him and his circumstances and what he's trying to accomplish in challenging Putin. And at one point, he brings up the fact that this seemingly perfect political specimen at one point, not too long ago, appeared at a rally with some right-wing nationalists. It's really interesting to see that Navalny doesn't really apologize for it. He says, basically, I don't agree with them, but look at what I'm up against. Look at the battle I'm fighting. And in not so many words, he says, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Again, doesn't use that exact phrase, certainly, but he doesn't try to backpedal from it completely. And I bring it up only because I believe Navalny, but it's the first moment in the film where you start to question that persona, the perfection that he seems to embody. And of course, then you have to sit back as a viewer and go, well, he's just a man. (laughs) Why did I think he was perfect to begin with? But once that's introduced you do find yourself starting to question, well, is he almost like a movie character? He's almost like someone who's been invented. And I half expect this to turn into a fictional version of his life. And we discover that it's all been, it's all been some kind of act. And he really just craves power as much as the next guy. And this is the way he's going to get it. I don't really believe that's the case, Josh, especially when you consider the sacrifice that the movie shows him ultimately make and where he is right now and how he is struggling. But I guess what I'm trying to get at is that there's a movie to be made just about the investigation into his poisoning, the attempt on his life. There's a movie just to be made about him as a politician and as a man and what he really stands for and doesn't stand for. And this movie is more concerned with the investigation part. And I get it. I would be too. I think it gives enough to the other part to make it worthwhile and, to make it a smart film that should be seen. But I'd watch that part too, if we ever get it. Yeah. It just makes it, it sounds like it makes it a way more interesting film. If you can start Mm -hmm. to feel a little conflicted yourself. Yeah. You're, you're engaging intellectually on a number of different levels. Then Mm -hmm. Navalny is available with an HBO max subscription as well as premium subscriptions to Hulu, Amazon prime and more. If you've seen any of these films and agree or disagree with our reviews, Send us a note, feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. We do have an Oscar special coming up in a couple of weeks. Even better, Michael Phillips of the Chicago Tribune will be our guest for that show. We have more Oscars homework to do. We have more 1973 homework to do. So we're going to call it there. That's our show. If you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, Adam is at Film Spotting and I'm at Larson on Film. At filmspotting.net, you can vote in the current poll, which celebrates the 50th anniversary of the 1973 movie year. We're asking, what is the best film of 1973? For show t-shirts or other merch, go to filmspotting.net slash shop.
Film Spotting is largely listener supported. You can join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to the show early and ad free, plus a weekly newsletter and monthly bonus shows. We're planning February's bonus show now. Producer Sam threw out a pretty good idea as <laughs> more homework. We're preparing for Film Spotting Madness. We both have some significant blind spots. From the 1960s, maybe we put three of those together and see what listeners vote on. Yeah, I mean, I always like the kill two birds with one stone approach. There's a lot of homework I've got to do for madness in terms of catching up with 60s films. So, yeah, let's give family members three titles that we both have not seen and see which one they want to hear us talk about most. Depending on which plan you have as a family member, you may have access to the entire film spotting archive some episodes that correspond nicely with this episode. Show 866, we did our top five Hitchcockian movies. 609, we did the show you mentioned, Josh, during our conversation about Psycho. Top five childhood movie scares. That Arbogast. Was a personal one. Arbogast getting it on the stairs, my number two. Was it really? Yeah. I had forgotten that. Number 384, going way back, we did our boy's best friend is his mother memorial list. Sound familiar? <laughs> our top five mother-son movies. And finally, if you really want to subject yourself to some pain, and that is a shot only at me and not my co-founder and original co-host, Sam Van Hallgren, you can listen to what was the third marathon in the history of film spotting, episode 64 to 72, late 05 into 2006, Josh, we did an Alfred Hitchcock marathon, seven movies, the 39 steps taking us to frenzy. So no psycho there because you'd both seen it before, right? That's correct. Okay. Yep. Filmspottingfamily.com is where you can learn more. Out in wide release, it's Magic Mike's Last Dance. We're going to see that. And Titanic. 25th anniversary re-release should have included that. And from the archive a year or two ago, we did a sacred cow of Titanic as well. We're not going to revisit it this time, but we will see Magic Mike, and we're going to do our top five Magic-est Mike moments. This is not the place for it, but as we were talking about Psycho and the fact that you'd seen it before, it's going in the Pantheon, right, with this sacred cow review? It probably should, right? I think so. I mean, that's ostensibly why we do these, to consider them mm. for Pantheon status. I didn't even hear a minor quibble between the two of us. Yeah, I'm just, I'm I'm hesitant to pull the trigger only because we didn't talk about it at all. And Sam would have to get the music ready to go. And maybe he's not ready. He'd be fumbling over the track. I bet he could handle it. He could probably figure it out. We might have to see what happens next week. Let's see if we get some good feedback on Psycho. We'll do that then. All right. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film spotting is listener supported. 
Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.